You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Good evening and welcome, everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for Friday, the 3rd of April, 2020. Thank you all for tuning in. On tonight's program, we're going to be looking at the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And something that I hope, as Christians, as believers in Christ, that is a doctrine dear to our hearts. And I hope that if you are a new believer, that as you study in this doctrine, that you'll grow in your love and, uh, I suppose, appreciation and gladness for what Christ has done for us. Just to speak a little bit about what's going on in the world, and it, it, it's impossible to ignore it, and um, hopefully all the sound is good and everything else like that. I say this probably at the start of every program more and more because I don't know, because the... Um, I think the internet has been affected in some parts of the world. I noticed some live streams were affected from places like California. So um, I don't know if that's going to happen here. And uh, who knows? And it's probably best not to speculate. We remember, um, and I thank you to the brothers uh, who are in the chat room, and uh, thank you for the people, and thank you for the feedback, uh, people emailing and everything else like that. It's, it's massively appreciated. And um, in case I don't sometimes get back to people and things like that. Um, we remember in our prayers, because we shouldn't forget and we shouldn't be kind of glib and blasé about uh, so many loss, so many people dying at the moment. Um, it's up to, I don't know what number it is around the world, four or 5,000 a day. And it looks like it's going to go far higher than that. Um, especially... In the United States, uh, keeping your prayers, those in New York, New York State, New York City. I have family. I have, um, I have a brother-in-law, a sister-in-law who, um, who live in New York City. My my brother as well, and uh, his wife and children. They live well. It's close to New York, Connecticut. I think it is. Um, I have cousins who live in New York. So um, I've never been. It's a huge city. I've been, well, I've been twice, once or twice I've been there, and it's been so long since I've been there, but I ask you to keep in your prayers. It's a, it is a, it is a crazy city, but pray that it turns to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I mean by crazy as in a very busy city, very fast-paced city, um, but just pray that that what the, the the things that are happening there, I think the death toll in New York alone has reached three three thousand. That the people there, especially doctors, nurses, people are putting their lives on the line. Those brave doctors and nurses, that they'll see the brevity of life. That this life appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Similar death tolls, or worse death tolls, seen in places like France, as they're seeing. Um, the nursing home totals are coming through and trying to think 
Spain is really bad, Italy's really bad, and there's a couple of other countries that are catching up. And um, brethren, we really need to be on our knees. And um, behind all those statistics, there are families. There are people who've lost loved ones unexpectedly. It's not just people in their 80s, etc. There are more and more people between the ages of 25 and 50 who are getting sick. And even the death statistics don't tell all the stories and all the pain and all the hardship. There's lots and lots of people who of that 200,000 people around the world who've recovered from this COVID-19, they have, some of them have lung damage and things like that, but they struggled and, and fought and, and, there's a, and there's still a lot of people in critical so when we look at this death statistics and look at the mortality rate and calculate all that, there are so many lives being affected by this. And I pray we'll, we'll see a number of things around the world. The brevity of life, the fact that God is in control of all things, that we're not. You and I, we're not in control of all things. And this is why we seek God in heaven for our deliverance. In our brief look at the psalm today, I'm gonna, we're going to look briefly at Psalm 4. And just for a few comments at the start of the program, a few programs ago, we just began looking at the psalms, something we did in, I did in college. I found a really, really bless, a real blessing to my soul. And I really want to encourage all of you to go through the Psalter throughout this time in quarantine and throughout this time in lockdown to encourage, and to not only do that, but to sing through this altar for that encourage for those times of distress that the psalms speak about that man-made hymns just simply do not um psalm 4 says this and we'll we'll lead with order of prayer before we get into psalm 4 almighty and ever-living god lord we pray that you would be with us all those listening to the live stream all those who are who will listen to it later we pray, Lord, that it would be an encouragement in this difficult time. May our eyes be fixed upon you. No matter what happens to us or to loved ones, may we trust in you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 4 reads as follows. This is God's holy and infallible word. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart, on your bed, and be still, Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You have put gladness in my heart, more than in the, se the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So, again, we're going through this because... Um, <laughs> thank you, Christopher, in the, in the comment section. Um, 
It's a, it's a work in progress. Somebody in the comment section has commented on my beard. I don't know how long we're going to grow it, but, you know, um, we'll see. We'll see. Anyway, so um, Psalm 4 is very much dealing with safety, and uh, some say it's very much a follow-on and a kind of a morning and evening with Psalm 3. Now, here in this, the psalmist David, it's a psalm of David, it's in the title, Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. He comes before in prayer, in his d- distress, appealing to past mercies. And, I, and I'm sure if we've been a Christian long enough, or even if you've been a Christian a short time, we can remember times in the past. We should remember times in the past when the Lord has delivered us, when the Lord has answered prayer, when people have been in distress I remember at the top of my head, one of the most dramatic answers to prayer, I remember just before my children were born and my wife was brought into, it was kind of, there was a a little bit of uncertainty. She was brought into the operating room and we preferred a kind of a natural birth and it was going to be cesarean section. I just prayed really hard just a few minutes before that. And I remember because and the, my children, their, their heartbeat was kind of go up and down, and there was a bit of worry about that. And I remember just praying, "Oh Lord, if it if it is pleasing in your sight," and it was just answered immediately. The nurse ran out. I was in shock. It was like, "Wow, that was quick." Um, there are times when the Lord answers prayer. We shouldn't forget that. And the psalmist here, "Have mercy on me and hear my prayer." And there's going to be times. Regardless of whether it's direct family, extended family, this thing of COVID-19 is most likely going to affect each and every one of us personally. Be ready for that. I don't know about the models, the models of how many will die and all this kind of stuff. Do you know what? People who do models and work in models, that is purely for making decisions. Models are usually wrong, but they're usually a ballpark figure to kind of go, in this course of action, how can we save as many lives? They have a, they have a purpose, but, um, none of us know besides God, what the future will hold. But what I'm saying is we're most certainly in a serious situation in every country. There's nowhere on earth where we have safety apart from the Lord's, the safety that the Lord himself provides. Governments can't provide it. The greatest healthcare on planet Earth cannot provide it. It doesn't matter what you do. Eventually, death will come for you. You will, regardless of it's COVID-19 or whatever else it is, you will stand before the throne of God and only the safety that the Lord provides will matter ultimately. A hundred, a thousand years from now. How lo- and, and in the psalm, what is the psalmist's distress? How long, O oh, you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness? You seek falsehood. So he's lamenting the people around him, those who are his enemies. And we saw in Psalm 3, the last program, that when, when David was fleeing from Absalom, his son, there's these enemies surrounding him. And there's that lamentation. How long will this go on? 
But know, in the midst of this, and know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. Not because he is godly, but it's for himself, for his glory. But unless we are walking in holiness, unless we're growing in Christ, we have no reason to believe this is speaking about ourselves. Now, in an ultimate sense, all the Psalms speak of Christ. He lamented before his Father in heaven while on earth. Obviously in a holy and godly manner, never sinning. And also, Christ himself has been, he is God's elect in whom he is well pleased. And because of him, any of us, it's only because of Christ that any of us can have a relationship with him. The Lord will call, the Lord will hear when I call to him. That is, if you're in Christ Jesus, the Lord will hear. Now the answer to that prayer may be yes, no, or perhaps not now, but trust him with the answer. Trust him with the timing. You may be praying for a lost loved one for years and years on end, but the Lord wants you to persevere in prayer for that person. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart. There's nothing wrong with being angry as long as for righteous reasons. Actually, if if we're not angry sometimes with some of the things that are going on in the world, the slaughter of the unborn, things like that, there's something wrong with us. We cannot be robots. We cannot be indifferent. Meditate within your heart upon your bed and be still. Offer your sacrifice of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. And whatever happens, we need to put our trust in the Lord. And many say, and there'll be scoffers who who will show us any good. And we are seeking in the midst of all the calamity, all the crisis, all the terrible news that is coming through. Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Verse 6 that his face would shine upon us, and that he would show us favor. You have put gladness in my heart. Our Christianity should be joyful. And it doesn't mean we ignore sorrow. It doesn't mean there are not times. And we should be, and we should mourn, and sorrow at times. But there is a gladness in our heart, no matter what is happening. No matter what is happening, we should have a sense of peace. Some will have it more than others, of course. But that peace that passes all understanding, there is a taste of heaven here and now, today. Some theologians will call the call it the already and not yet. We have a degree of it today and an even greater degree of it in heaven. There's something wrong if our Christianity is completely joyless. You've put gladness in my heart. Even with all that's going on, there should be a gladness in your heart. And again, we're not robots. It's not just switch on a switch. There are going to be times and there's distresses. And this is one of the wonderful things about going through the Psalms. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. Only 
God knows the future. Only God can keep us safe. If, if, if this whole crisis has taught us anything, how frail are we? I think there's a certain degree of which... I'm not saying, by the way, that, that what we're going through now is similar, might have some similarities to what happened in 1918 with the Spanish flu. Um, global pandemic, of course, Spanish flu was kind of different. It was more aggressive. Um, very, very graphic stories being told about that. Attacked between the ages of 18 and 24. So a different type of illness. But at the same time, I think we thought in the modern era, we're getting better. We're prepared for anything. Doesn't matter what happens to us, we are invincible. More and more of that sense in the, in the Western world. And there's a sense of that still in certain parts of the world. We'll just continue like normal. We'll be fine. And it seems like God is taking away, no matter how sophisticated our planning is, the Lord is in control. And it's only him in which we have our safety, whether it be in this world or in the world to come. So we need to pray. We need to pray. Now, um, today we're going to be looking at the doctrine of justification by faith alone. I don't know how far we're going to get through it. I'm going to try and get through all of it today. There's um, This is going to be largely based on a paper I did for college. Um, we do a systematic theology paper every year. And this year I decided to work on justification by faith alone. And I think we should, this doctrine, we should take it into our hearts and love it. And I actually think that the more we study this doctrine, the more we learn and love, not even just in a theoretical level, but the more we're, we're appreciative of our God in heaven. We cannot treat the gospel as in, yes, I am so wonderful of course, God would want to forgive me. We almost come with a sense of expectation and we think, hmm, God couldn't possibly send someone to hell. The wonder and the amazement and the, the glorious doctrine of justification asks this question. How can a man have a right relationship with God? That alone is amazing. That a mere puny creature like you and me can have a relationship, a right relationship in which God looks with favor upon mere creatures. Now, the question which justification by faith alone deals with is even deeper and more glorious than that because if we, can, can, if we contemplate our condition, our rebellion, and our state before God, John Murray, in his amazing work, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, said this, The basic religious question is that of our relation to God. How can a man be just with God? How can he be right with the Holy One? In our situation, however, the, the question is much more aggravated. It is not simply, how can man 
be just with God. But how can a sinful man be just with God? See the difference? It's not just how can a man be just with God? How can a sinful man be just with God? And we have to start off with that sense in which, how is this even possible? There are references in the scriptures that God cannot justify the wicked. So what hope do any of us have? Job 9.2 says, Truly I know it is so, but how can a man be righteous before God? We have to start with, I really believe we need to start there and not just go, mm, yeah, yeah, that's what the, the scriptures teach. Yes, that is, let us think about the, the, the agony that Martin Luther was going through prior to him seeing that the scriptures taught this. Martin Luther, who saw the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. He saw he couldn't meet God's standard. It, it drove him mad. He could never go to confession enough. He knew his conscience was burdened. God used that man, that imperfect man, in such a way to show the ways of sin. To show the how can any of us expect to come before God when we have done such horrible things? To be declared righteous before God. Now, Luther finally found peace and comfort in the scriptures when he saw that justification was by faith alone. Romans 1.17 says, for it is the righteousness of God, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. What does it all mean? What is faith? Have you ever thought, what is faith? Because if you don't know what faith is, there's the danger in which you may think the faith is some kind of work. The faith, perhaps, is the work that you do in order to gain something. This has risen over some of the federal vision or the new perspective on Paul. Is it some kind of legal fiction? As Roman Catholicism claims that it's, well, the person isn't really righteous because it's imputed or attributed to the person's account. Is it really as important as the reformer said? Because here's the thing, right? Because of the downgrade of justification by faith alone, it allowed in 1994, a document called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, a document signed by a man who wrote extensively on the doctrine of justification by faith alone and is still quoted widely, J.I. 
Packer. And back in 1994, he felt he could sign a document with Roman Catholics agreeing that we are saved by faith, by, no, it was a, by grace through faith. I'm trying to remember the exact wording. But the solas were taken out. Not an accident, not an oversight. We must never lose sight of this doctrine. Martin Luther said this, On this article stands all that we teach and practice against the Pope, the devil, and the world. Therefore, we must be quite certain and have no doubt about it. Otherwise, everything is lost. And the Pope and the devil and whatsoever opposes us will gain victory and be proved right. And John Owen said the following, There cannot be a more effectual engine applied for the ruin of religion than for men to declaim against the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Let's get into it. Now, before we get into what justification is, is, let's deal with a popular slogan that is often used in churches. And you may yourself have used the slogan. You may have learned it. I learned it from the first church I was a member of. I'm not saying that these people are dangerous. I'm saying that some of the truth is missing in this overly simplified slogan, and you've probably heard it, that justification means just as if I'd never sinned. I dare say many probably that was the first thing that they were ever taught, and that's as far as it ever went. There is a danger with such a definition, just as if I'd never sinned. It is a half-truth. And we got to be very careful about glib, quick slogans. Because we rob ourselves. We rob ourselves of the freedom, the assurance, the joy, the gladness, the wonderfulness, the warmth of God that is displayed in this doctrine for people who are in Christ Jesus and what was achieved by his life, his death, his burial, and resurrection. It may, these kind of doctrines, these kind of slogans can seem, sometimes seem helpful and quick and easy to understand, but it is a half-truth. And the problem with a half-truth, it is, it loses so much. I don't want to go over the top here because I'm sure there are some people preaching the gospel, but have never really thought of the problem that this slogan can have. I would urge you to bin it immediately and truly think about what, what it means to be justified before God. Now, in the original languages, we're going to look at the Hebrew in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy 25.1 reads the following. Is there a dispute between men? And they come to court that the judges may judge them. And they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked. Right. So, in Hebrew, the word translated to justify in English is the word sadiq. 
Sadak, sorry, Sadak. Sadiq is the hifl. So Sadak is to justify. That's the Kal form of it. Now in in this passage in Deuteronomy twenty five, it's in the what's called the hifl. I don't want to lose anybody here but it's called the hifl form. And the hifl is causative, and it means to declare righteous. It's also clear in the context as well. But this hifl form is to declare righteous. If we look at this part of Deuteronomy 25.1, they justify the righteous. This is the act of the judge. This is the act of the judge. They justify the righteous. The judge, by the way, doesn't make someone righteous. The judge only declares what it is, what the person is, and that's it. Um, literally, this phrase, this is not how you would translate it, but it is like this. The, 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 they declare righteous the declared righteous ones. This hifl form is used twice. It's used in the in the, in the noun, and also in um, in the verb. There's that declarative sense. John Murray said this on this verse: "It is not the function of judges to make people righteous. The meaning is simply and only that judges were to give a just judgment, and therefore were to declare the righteous." to be righteous, as they were to declare the wicked to be wicked. And this will come up a bit like later on when we talk about the whole thing about legal fiction. No, it's not some legal fiction. This person is declared righteous, is seen in regards to the law, is righteous. Yes, in and of ourselves, inherently, we are sinners. But re but regards to our relationship to the law, those who are justified are no longer. They're without blame and holy before God, obviously based not upon us. If it was, we'd have no hope, but based upon the merits of Christ. Thinking a little bit more about Deuteronomy 25.1, they justify the righteous. I don't know if, if there's any much point, anybody read Hebrew, but... Um, But it does have this sense of they declare righteous. That's they justify the declared righteous ones. Or the righteous. It's not really, it's not even a plural, really. So this word is used twice. In the, the Septuagint. So we're going from Hebrew into Greek. And this will be very useful when we look at the New Testament, which is originally written in Greek. This word, Sadiq, or Sadak, in Greek is Dikai'o. Dikai'o. Now, with Hebrew, or sorry, with Greek, there's a couple of different schools. You may pronounce it differently. <laughs> this is the way I pronounce it, it's usually the way it's pronounced. Um, you're going to get people who pronounce Greek in different ways. And I don't know if I butchered the pronunciation of Hebrew, but I digress. The equivalent Greek word is dikaio, to justify. 
that is used in the in the Greek New Testament. And the and just to remember for later, the equivalent noun is dikaiosune, righteousness. See how they're very similar to justify, dikaio, and the noun righteousness is dikaiosune. See this kind of a, re a relationship between the two. Um in the in the Septuagint, for those of you not aware of the Septuagint, the Septuagint is thought to have been translated about 300 BC. It's basically the Old Testament into Greek. It's look, I'm not saying that the Septuagint is really, really handy for certain things. There's various, there's a couple of different editions and versions of it and stuff like that. Be very careful, don't be using it to correct the Old Testament Hebrew or anything like that. But I digress. In in the section in Deuteronomy 25.1, that section that we were laboring over there a second ago, they justify the righteous. Kai dikaiosusi ta dikaion. See the dikaiosusi ta dikaion. See that relationship between, in English we have to justify. It doesn't quite give the full meaning that the Hebrew and the Greek give. In, let's just say, the meaning is far clearer in Hebrew and in Greek. In, to justify, it's almost like in English, it'd be like the justified one. The one declared righteous, to declare righteous, the verb. Okay, I hope, hopefully I've made that clear. And uh, if anybody, if, if that doesn't make sense, you can shoot me a question in the chat room. Hopefully it will. Um, so that's starting from slightly different direction from some people. This verb, dikaio, justify, to justify, this is what the word means, is used of to justify God. It says in Luke 7, 29, and when all people heard him, even the tax collectors justified, dikaio, God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. So we cannot obviously make God righteous. We can only declare him to be righteous. So in Luke 7.29, it's very, very clear it is used in that sense. In Romans 3.20, therefore by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified. Again, the same Greek Word. Now, if you look up your Greek New Testament, you're going to see different forms. You're going to see, it looks, it, you're not going to see dikaio, that's the verb, but you're going to see dikaio thesete. No, terrible. But anyway, so do you see how it's used? It's used in a declarative sense. It's used in not, the clear thing is here, it is not to make righteous. It is not to make righteous. I labor that point because Roman Catholicism teaches, based on a misunderstanding of the Latin word justificar, the Latin, so in Latin, so the, the Bible is translated, dikaio, to justify, is, is translated into Latin, justificar, this Latin word can be, 
can be understood as to make righteous. It is possible to understand it that way. The context is clear, but for example, the end of the world means to make or to do. Ficare. Anybody is anybody speaks Italian or French still has that words that are similar to that have that meaning. So it has that it's possible the correct understanding if you're using the Latin word alone, but not with the original Greek. And it was what happened was in the Western Church, Greek fell out of use. And Augustine kind of more or less lent heavily on the Latin. I'm just saying this, by the way, to just emphasize to you the the importance of the original languages and that we don't neglect them in the church. Now, I'm not somebody who I have a decent, I can read a certain amount of Greek and improving, but I would encourage all of you, especially the ministers of the gospel, get a Bible mesh course or something, Find a way to improve your Greek and your Hebrew. There's Bible works will not replace that. And there's consequences for the church when we neglect the original languages. But I digress. And the more I learn of the, the Greek and the Hebrew, the more I realize that. And you don't have to be a minister of the gospel to do this. It can be anybody. I hope my girls... I don't know, maybe when they're six, they'll start going through the Greek alphabet, little bits here and there. It's sad that the classics are so neglected. And again, I am not somebody who's brilliant at the classics. I've tried to brush up in the last couple of years, and I'm trying to improve my knowledge. But in the church at large, these things have largely been set aside. Anyway, William Webster, who wrote a really good book called um, The Church of Rome at the Bar of History, Say this about justification. The word justification is primarily a judicial or legal term. Justification is declarative in nature. It refers to a person's right standing or status before God. To declare righteous or to justify are different translations of the same word, and they are identical in meaning. Justification is the act of God whereby the sinner is accepted and set free from all judgment and condemnation on the basis of Christ's righteousness, which is accounted to him. The opposite of justification is condemnation. We see that in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are justified, there's no condemnation. So Protestantism, since at least the Reformation, has taught that justification is a legal or a forensic, you're going to hear that word forensic, think of you know, people involved in forensics or involved in crime labs and all this kind of stuff. It is to do with the law, the law, our relationship to the law. And because of what Christ did, that relationship to the law has changed. However, while we've been born again, regenerated as the Spirit of God, therefore we trust in Him. We are not, it's, we have been made righteous in the sense of sanctification, but not justification. If 
anything within us was the basis for our legal standing, none of us would have any hope. And you see, if you can remove that error from your head as a Christian, you'll say, oh, I had a bad day today. Was your standing ever based upon your performance? No. And if you understand that you're as you're declared righteous before God based upon the merits of Christ, can it ever change? What did you contribute to it in the first place? Absolutely nothing. And I tell you, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, if in these times, if you're not firmly footed in this doctrine, you're going to suffer from doubts of assurance. There can be other things that cause us, but I tell you, pour your heart into this. I'll try and recommend a few books at the end of this. This is not some dry intellectual debate of the 17th and 16th century. This is something that should capture all of our hearts, that we glorify God for. The problem is, one of the reasons our worship can be so shallow is because we know so little of what Christ has done for us. We think of it purely as washing away our sins. Of course, that is something to be thankful for, but it's not simply that. It's not the morally neutral we become in a, in a relationship before God. It's the just shall live by faith. And we ask the question now, the legal fiction question. It's a common Roman Catholic objection to the teaching that a, that a, a believer is a sinner and yet just before God. At the same time, there's a Latin phrase that escapes me right now, where you're both a sinner, you're both saved and a sinner. I can't remember the Lutheran term, but I digress. So, the person is truly just before God as the sinner is represented before God by Christ. Christ has become the legal representative, the advocate, the scripture calls him, because of this union with Christ. He is no longer is it Adam. You've got two rep, one or two representatives. Either the broken covenant of works in the Garden of Eden, and Adam is your representative, and he has broken the law of God. That has been imputed to your account. Your own sins as well, of course. Or the perfect work, perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He, when our legal standing is considered, is based on the righteousness of Christ, not in the performance, not in your performance. Christ is our advocate. It says in 1 John 2, 1, My little children, these things are right to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate. Imagine a lawyer or solicitor, as we say, on these islands. Actually, a barrister will go before the court. But an advocate, somebody who is your advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the one who will plead your case, not you. He will plead your case based on his work. He's already taken the punishment due to sin. And not only that, he's also obeyed 
the law in every point. He's loved God with every moment that he was on earth. And he also loved his neighbor as himself. He fulfilled the law in every single point. If anyone, if by any one man's offense, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one, Jesus Christ. And Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, this brings us on to, and guys, if you have any questions as we go through this, if I haven't explained anything particularly well, please ask away, no problem at all. And because um, this is vitally important, hopefully this will encourage you in this dark time, especially when many of us around the world cannot get to church. And perhaps some people might not even have some kind of a live stream set up and things like that. Imputation, the doctrine of imputation. For this, I'm going to be relying heavily upon the work of J.V. Fesco and his book, Death in Adam, Life in Christ. It's not an expensive book. It was published by um, Christian Focus. I think they're based in Scotland, an excellent publisher. And if you... I'm not aware of any other books written in imputations, probably others that I'm ignorant of, but that book was excellent and a real blessing. He focused on the historical background, the imputation. Anyway, but imputation, I'm going to focus on imputation because it's very, very important. Imputation is an active attribution. I'm quoting here from Richard A. Muller's Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms. I'm trying to be very, very precise in how I'm ex explaining this. An act of attribution, specifically either one, imputatio peccati, that's the Latin, the imputation of sin, or two, I'm not going to read the Latin um, unless people really want me to, the imputation of the satisfaction of Christ. So there's imputation can be either of sin or the righteousness or the satisfaction of Christ. The satisfaction of Christ is not simply the wrath that is what you call, what we call it, passive obedience. And passive obedience, another term for passive obedience, is his suffering obedience. His suffering for the sins of his people. So, it is being attributed to him. So, a bit of history here. In the early church, there was, one, there was something what was called the realistic the realistic view of imputation. To be very, very simple, in the early church, they focused very much on what was called natural descendants. And what do we mean by natural descendants of imputation? Adam had children. He passed on naturally his sin to them. Now, we're dealing with the imputation with Adam first, because it will help you understand this, hopefully, Lord willing. And then, their children pass it on to them, and then their children pass it on to them. Actually, there's, there are, there has been a few theologians, good theologians, who have held to this view with regards only to Adam. 
people don't do it with regards to Christ, and we're, we're thankful of that. But um, I, now I won't mention names in case I'm wrong, but there has been cases, good godly theologians, and there has been differences of opinions of how Adam's sin has been imputed. Is it covenantally? That's my view. And I believe that that is the most consistent reform view. That is covenantally, Adam is the representative. Because also, if we are in Christ, Christ covenantally is our representative before the Father. It is not a natural passing down in the sense of through intercourse or whatever else. Just through, because by, by, by virtue of them being natural descendants. It also explains, and don't want to get into this too much, but how Christ could be without sin because he wasn't represented covenantally by Adam. The rest of the human race were. But that question has perplexed good, godly, and sound theologians for quite a while, actually. Um, now, so we talked about the realistic view of imputation. This is where the person themselves is changed in this imputation. It is not something just attributed to them. And that was the dominant philosophical view at the time of Augustine and other people right up until the Middle Ages. Around the time of the Middle Ages, the way people looked at things changed. And it changed in this way. There was became kind of new uh, new insights, new vistas, whatever you want to call it. Um, there was a, a school of, more or less philosophy, nominalism. And nominalism was this, that the idea that universals did not have a real S existence, but here's the clear, here's the important part, but are merely names applied to qualities found in certain objects. Merely names applied to certain objects. Attribution. We are not sin, we are, we are sinful in and of our own selves, but because of Christ, we are righteous because of Christ, by, by virtue of that union in Christ. Because of nominalism, and it looked with non-realistic, non-ontological lenses into this whole issue, it allowed people, in a sense, freedom to look at this declaratively. Now, you're probably wondering, didn't Augustine believe in justification by faith alone? He did. He did. And he, in, in regards to his doctrine of grace and everything else, he didn't take this to his logical conclusion. Augustine believed the gospel. He was a tremendous blessing to the church. He refuted the heresy of Pelagius. But always, it takes theological controversy to bring out going, oh, that was wrong too? And we have the blessing of the hindsight to look back in church history and going, oh, how did he make a mistake on that? If we were living at that time, we'd have all probably either not really thought too much of it, may have been a footnote, and this would have happened in many, many doctrines. It took controversies on the Trinity to really iron out what, what exactly what we mean by personhood and all this kind of things. What does it mean of 
you know, is it a similar substance or is it of the same substance? Huge controversy over um, the Aryan controversy, the difference of one Greek letter. So in hindsight, let's not be too critical when we look back. They did not have the same information, the books, etc., that we have the blessing of being able to look at today. Now, by the time of the Reformation, by the time of the Reformation, justification was seen not as a declaration before God. It was seen as a process of being made righteous before God. and largely based on this realistic view of imputation and how sin is either passed down or it's, it's ontological. Ontological means you're being the person of being. Now, obviously the Reformers believed that the righteousness of Christ is imputed Attributed to the person's account. And justification is a declaration before God. It is distinct from sanctification. Not separate. I mean, if a person is justified, they will be sanctified. If somebody's been justified before God, they will begin a process of sanctification. While these things are connected in one will follow the other, they are distinct, and if you, if you confuse the two, you corrupt the gospel. And that's what happened to medieval, the medieval Catholic Church and all this kind of thing. To illustrate this, the importance of the doctrine of imputation during the Reformation, the point was made by a, Jesuit, a Spanish Jesuit priest during the Council of Trent. It's, it's quite odd. It's, it's funny because... He made the argument better than probably a lot of us today could make it. Um, okay, this Jesuit priest was arguing against the doctrine of imputation. He thought it was dangerous. But in arguing against this, this is Diego Lenes. Diego Lenes. He said that he said that imputation eliminated the merit of good works. And it also completely removes any place for inherent righteousness. They saw that as a dangerous thing. He argued this during the Council of Trent. These issues were debated. This was a hot issue of the day. Now, he argued other things that also... He was arguing against it. He thought this was a terrible thing. But as Protestants, we kind of go, yes, we support imputation because it removes the merit of good works and it removes any place for inherent righteousness in the justified sinner. Romans 4, 6 says this, just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes Righteousness apart from works. 
Now, let's deal with active and passive obedience. This is important. This is important. And I know some people, again, very good theologians, again, when I say this in critique, I do not mean that these people are terrible and don't go read their works. There's just some misunderstanding takes place. Active and passive obedience is not active and passive in the way we think of modern English. Just checking the time there. Um, I'm probably going to go, I'm going to see if I can go all the way through the paper because this is vitally important. And I think this will help so many people. This will bless any Christian to know these things. We lack the richness and the joy of these things. Do you know, we, we get so fascinated. This is a bit of a rant here now. We get so fascinated with prophecy and the latest conspiracy theory we can shove into the book of Revelation. But do we get, do we get excited about justification by faith alone? I'm not saying don't exposit all parts of Scripture is important, but what, are we excited about this doctrine? If not, why not? This is not some footnote at the bottom of a page. Just some popular slogan that we can just swat aside and say, well, I know the gospel, now I'm going on to greater things. If you're growing in maturity, you are growing in your understanding of the gospel. You will never, ever exhaust your understanding excuse me, of the gospel. You will never get to a point where you're going to go, I know all the things of the glorious gospel. Deeper than the deepest oceans. So vast, so, so rich, and so rewarding and blessing. And I think it's one of the reasons for the, the weakness today. We, we don't study the gospel enough. We study everything else. We study historical context. We study all this kind of stuff. And I'm not saying that there's no place for that. But the, foot, the, the gospel can never become a footnote. The active and passive obedience of Christ. There, there are no, this is not mean here that there's two obediences. This is not what this is saying at all. This is purely theological, if you want to use the term jargon or whatever else, in order that none of Christ's obedience is taken out and not imputed to the justified sinner. Or at least we recognize what has actually been imputed. Active and passive, don't think of it in modern English. Of course, active is referring to his law-keeping. The first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. He kept that perfectly. Go on throughout the Ten Commandments, which is a summarization of the law of God. He kept it all perfectly. He came to fulfill all righteousness. Now, so that's the active part. The passive part is not like, well, one part, he's doing something, and then in the passive part, he's not. That's not what it means. The passive part, and this is mostly due to our, you know, our change, English language changes. 
and it, the modern understanding can be misleading. Passive, think of suffering, how we suffered for our sins. That obedience, that aspect. Remember, it's all one obedience, but this is an aspect of his obedience. People don't usually deny this, but they usually, quite a large number of people, I think today, you come across some people who will deny that the act of the act of obedience to Christ is also imputed to the account of the believer. Or at least it's diminished or not focused upon. There's massive dangers in that. There's a bit of a, a vacuum opened up. And if we just say our sins have been washed clean, we still have a problem. We're not righteous. And if you open up that gap to your own righteousness to provide that, that's dangerous as well. This is why this doctrine is important. Christ fulfilled the law. He, we're not just saved by his death. We are saved by his death. But we're also saved by his life. Where does it say here? Look, Romans 5.10. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through his death by his son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by his life. When he was obeying his parents under Joseph and Mary, he was obeying the law in our place. Where Adam failed, Christ succeeded. He obeyed the law in all places. Now, there's a couple of places we can see this. Think about the baptism of John. John is baptizing with the baptism of repentance. And you think, repentance. Here is, and what was baptism? Baptism, a form of washing. Now, don't think that the Jews had no idea what baptism was. Baptism, we even have it in, in the word baptismos in Hebrew, in, in the book of Hebrews, is translated washings in some translations. These are simply Old Testament washings. They knew exactly what this meant. Ceremonial cleansing, washing from the filth of your sins. So who is to come? Who needs this baptism of repentance? Sinners. So Jesus comes before John the Baptist to be baptized by him. And how does John respond? He says this. Then Jesus, this is from Matthew 3, 13 to 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And are you coming to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Remember that phrase, to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. 
suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased to fulfill all righteousness. Remember earlier we were t- talking about dikai o'o. And the noun of that verb, dikaiosune. Why is that important? Well, here, to fulfill all righteousness, to fulfill all dikaiosune, which is the noun of dikaio. That righteousness with which the, the, you, the believer in Jesus Christ, would have. He came to fulfill all. Was Jesus Christ a sinner? I hope immediately people are saying no. The spotless, sinless Lamb of God never sinned once. So why come for the baptism for repentance? He tells us to fulfill all righteousness. Dikaiosune. He didn't need to do it for himself. He did it for us, his people. Those chosen before the foundation of the world. Those who will come to Christ in repentance and faith. He came to fulfill all righteousness. He obeyed in our place. See the wonderful riches of the word of God. Now you probably go, we were talking about the whole active and passive obedience of Christ. The active obedience has been denied by some in church history. One man by the name of Johannes Piscator, a 17th century theologian, denied the act of obedience was imputed to the believer's account. The problem here is, if the act of obedience is not imputed, then it leaves the door open to our righteousness. This is the problem. You see, if the, the just shall live by faith, well, how are we just? How are we righteous? How are we declared righteous? Christ has obeyed the law perfectly. He has paid the sin debt. What does that leave room for us in our contribution? Zero. See, if you understand what Christ did, what he obeyed, what he fulfilled, what room does it leave for our contribution if, if his work is perfect? If he fulfilled all righteousness, if he paid the sin debt, what room does it leave for our own works? Absolutely nothing. And again, what blessed assurance will come from that when we see that, if we're for truly trusting in Jesus Christ? You say, well, I trust that. Well, what can you contribute to that? That would be blasphemous. You cannot contribute to that. Your standing, your legal standing, the basis upon which Christ looks, or the Father, God the Father looks upon you, is based upon Christ. He delights in you. He loves you. Doesn't just put up with you. He delights in you. What would that do for our relationship with God? Imagine, if you will, 
you're you're working all day and you you come home tired five or six o'clock and you open the door and one of your small children one very dear to your heart runs into your arms you hug them you kiss them and you know what you forget all about your tiredness you forget all about your hard day why same when you see your wife you embrace her you kiss her why because you delight in her you delight in your children we don't put up with them we embrace them we love them and that is just a small and we're imperfect but god delights because of christ not because of us there's nothing within us that is love of bold, but because of Christ, because of Christ. See, we, we focus in upon the work of Christ to see why he delights in us. That way we're not puffed up. That way we don't think we're, we're amazing and fantastic. However, God delights in us as sons of the living God, adopted sons of the living God. Remember this, when you're going through all that happened, if this coronavirus takes one of you, one of your, maybe your wife, maybe your children, maybe your parents or whatever it is, maybe yourself, that if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, you remember that he delights in you. Let's talk a little bit about saving faith. Saving faith. What is faith? can be very, very easily misunderstood. Well, faith is faith. It's just trust. And most branches of Christianity today don't think about what faith is. There are three aspects to faith, and this is in the Westminster Confession of Faith. I'm not going to spend a ton of time in this. I've dealt with this before, um, because there are erroneous Sandemanians who would deny this. Um, most re recently, as a former Gordon Clark fan, um, the third aspect has been kind of blent into a census that is erroneous, that's going towards the Roman Catholic view, which the Roman Catholic view sees faith as mere mental assent. Biblical faith, again, if you go through the Westminster Confessions and things like this for more detailed explanation than we can really go through today, but there's three aspects of saving faith. Number one, notitia, which is basically knowledge. You got to know what you believe. What is the what is that thing that what is the content of belief? Otherwise, it's just empty mysticism and faith and faith. And what do you believe? And we that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Did you believe the Word of God, the content of the Gospel? A census, the second element of faith, which is you believe the truths of the Gospel. You believe these things are true. If you don't believe these things are true, how can you place any trust in them? And then the third part, fiducia. Trust. Richard A. Mueller, in his um, Latin and Greek Dictionary, I'd recommend 
people get it actually it's really really useful um try and dig up the name of it there again um Richard A. Mueller, Dictionary of Latin and Greek Theological Terms. It says, it's a faithful apprehension which appropriates savingly by an act of the will. Now that makes people nervous, but I'll explain in a second. By an act of the will, the true knowledge of the promises of God in Christ. Now in regeneration, do we participate in that? No. That is an act of God. But faith is an act, saving faith, is an act of the will. Now, the reason we believe is because we've been regenerated. And because of that, and there is something we must do, something we're incapable of doing because we're dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2, 1, but it is an act of the will. And it is a gift of God. It is the instrumental cause of justification, not the efficient cause of justification. The efficient cause of justification is God and God alone. We'll get into that in a second more, in more detail. The danger is in some schools of Protestantism today, I can understand why they've done it. But um, they have either downplayed or removed this entirely, this last aspect of this. The act, the fully apprehension, which appropriates safely by an act of the will, the true knowledge of the promises of God. So that's saving faith. And saving faith, it says it like in the, the larger catechism, the Westminster Larger Catechism basically says the same thing. Justifying faith. What is justifying faith? Question 72. Justifying faith is a saving grace, wrath in the heart of a sinner by the Spirit and Word of God, whereby he being convinced of his sin and misery and of the disability in himself and in other creatures to recover him out of the lost condition, not only assenteth to the truth of the promise of the gospel, not only assent, but receiveth and resteth upon Christ and his righteousness, therein held forth for pardon of sin and for the accepting accounting of his person righteous in the sight of God for salvation. I can't remember the exact page. I wrote it down somewhere. I read this years ago uh, in John Owen's Justification by Faith. He, um, and this is the Reformation Heritage Books edition of this, he refuted the idea of assent. The mere assent view of the Roman Catholic Church within that, and people are kind of, yeah, I might be able to dig it up if people really want it. Get a films at gmail.com if you want more on that. But this is the confessional and, well, biblical view of this as well. It is not just going, uh-huh, uh-huh, yes, I believe that is true. You can believe something is true. It doesn't mean you're trusting it. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2, uh, that's Titus 3, 5, by the way. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is, a, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith itself is a gift from God. Now, whether I think it's, I think it's very clear that the, um, and that not of yourselves is a gift of God, that I know there's, there's the Greek argument that there's different ones feminine. I think pistis is feminine. And then the, the word translated that is neuter, all this kind of stuff. Well, they don't have to agree. And it's kind of immaterial. Whether you want to say grace, well, grace is, of course, it is a gift from God by its very nature. But faith is also included, regardless of whether it's grace and faith or just, I think it's pretty clear that it's the faith is a gift of God. It is a saving grace. That's what, that's what the Westminster Confession or the Westminster Larger Confession teaches and also the Westminster Confession as well. Sorry, the catechism. <laughs> I'm going to make some silly mistakes tonight, I think, sometimes. Anyway, so it is God commands all men everywhere to repent and believe the gospel. That's what he commands us to do, to turn from our sin to him. However, because we're dead in trespasses and sins, none of us can and none of us will seek after him unless they have been born again, regenerated of the Spirit of God. And if they've been born again of the Spirit of God, they will, it's like a blind person seeing the sunrise, sees it is beautiful, sees it as glorious and flees from wretched sin because he sees the wretchedness of it because he's been regenerated and flees to Christ who is now glorious and beautiful in his sight. Prior to regeneration, the lost sinner has no interest in Christ. He sees God as some tyrant and he has no interest in submitting to his rule until, unless and until, a person has been regenerated by the Spirit of God. Salvation is of the Lord, and that faith itself is a gift of Almighty God. It's not something that originates within the person. Even what man, fallen man, is, con is called to do. And think about it this way. I say, oh, it's not fair. Why wasn't everybody given faith? Think about it like this. If, if God never gave faith to anyone, why does, he, why does he owe anything to anyone? He owes us nothing except his wrath. So if you have turned to Christ, it is because of the mercies of God, not because you're smart enough to figure it out. He has changed your heart. He has opened your heart. He's taken away your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. And if you're listening to this, I hope that there will be some people who either listen to this afterwards or maybe even listening to this now who are not born again, who are just curious, flicking through the internet or whatever else it may be. That If you do not believe in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and you think, I have done things so wicked, he has no interest in me. I may have brief moments of curiosity in him or whatever else it is, reading through the scriptures. He says to you, come. Come unto me, 
all ye that are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You are burdened under the weight of your guilt. Allow Christ to remove it. Run to him. Why will you wait? Why will you wallow in the horridness of your sin? I saw today in a, somebody was sharing an article that sadly things like internet pornography has gone up. Oh, what a wretched, horrible thing to set, our, set before our eyes. But there's forgiveness in Jesus Christ. For all is sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, every single one of us have thought things so horrible, so deceitful, that we'd lose our own best friends over. None of us have something to boast about. Anybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ because of the mercies of God, has fled from his sin, sees that city of destruction, see that city is going to be destroyed, and sees the king in the celestial city, and wants to go there, by faith. He wants to enter in through Christ, because Christ is glorious, and Christ is the only way, the truth, and the life. How are we doing for time? Not too bad. Not too bad. So, blessings to everyone commenting in. And feel free, if anybody's just joined us, feel free to ask questions. Anything else, um, Lord willing, I'll be able to answer it. Okay, now we're going to deal with the instrumental cause of justification. The instrumental cause of justification. And ask yourself this question. We're saved by faith alone. What does that mean? What does it mean to be saved by faith? Is there something that our faith, I mean, we've just dealt with, it's a gift of God. But is there something with that that brings some kind of merit that is in some way praiseworthy? I remember years ago having a conversation with a guy long time ago now. And I told him my testimony and I came to faith at 24. And he was like, oh, good man. I didn't get saved until later. I didn't understand that comment. That made no sense. Salvation is of the Lord. The difference between me and my last neighbor is not, oh, good on you. No, it's because the Lord, it pleased the Lord to open my heart and, and, and save me. And to, that I would see the righteousness of my sin. And that I can be here, even having this conversation and speaking to the people listening in tonight. Why? What is... How does this faith cause our justification? Isn't that the difference between our, our last neighbor and ourselves or our last family member or whoever else it is that we're praying for? We have faith. You know, people say, oh, I admire your faith. Well, that faith is a gift from God. Our weak, failing, imperfect faith is not even something to admire. If it was, 
in any way, the basis on which justification was based on, we'd have no hope. We would have no hope. But no, we say this. We are saved by that which saving faith lays hold of. Let me say that again. We are saved by that which saving faith lays hold of. It is an instrumental cause of justification, not the efficient cause of justification. Now, you might not be familiar with that term. Um, a very good book to get on this, and explains this really, really well, is R.C. Sproul's book, Faith Alone. And in that, on page 74, he goes through an analogy. And in that analogy, he talks about the differences in causes, which actually goes right back to the philosophy of Aristotle, Aristotle's laws of causality. Not everything that comes, just be careful here, not everything that comes from a pagan philosopher is nonsense, okay? There are things we will agree on. There's the light of nature and things like this. But the difference between, there was a number of different causes, but we're going to focus in on two, which will be very clear here. The instrumental cause and the efficient cause. And the illustration Sproul used was this. The efficient cause is like, if you think of a sculptor working on a sculpture, a sculptor working on a sculpture. I'll be a bit of a tongue twister in a second. But I found this one's the best analogy of understanding is The efficient cause is the sculptor himself. He is the one working away, chiseling away, forming the end product, the sculpture. But what instrument did the sculptor use in order to make what he was making? The chisel. The chisel. And the chisel was the instrumental cause. It's the means by which. Now, perhaps he could have used some other type of sharp instrument. But that was the means by which the sculptor came upon the final product. So we say of faith, are we saved by faith? Yes. But not in and of its own self. It is an instrumental cause. It is not a work. It lays hold upon the finished perfect work of Christ. You see, this is the danger too with our assurance. If we think, oh, my faith is weak and it's failing and it's not good enough and it doesn't measure up to what, you know, some of these, yes, our, our faith will be weak and failing at times, but our hope and our joy is not in the degree of our faith. Our, our faith can be as small as a mustard seed. As long as it lays hold upon Christ, it is saving faith. <clears throat> So the efficient cause of justification is always God, but the instrumental cause, think of that chisel, that means by which we lay hold upon it, the instrumental cause of justification is faith. Faith alone. Now, sadly, the Roman Catholic Church denies this, and the instrumental cause, the instrumental cause for the Roman Catholic Church is baptism. 
is baptism. And we have to counteract false views of justification if we're to understand true views of justification. This is why, this is the main reason, but it's not the only reason we can have no union with Rome. These were the two, it was two major doctrines which formed the breakaway from the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformation, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And the doctrine of Antichrist, that the Pope of Rome was the son of perdition himself. We are watering down of this doctrine has led, both of these doctrines, especially justification, has led to a loss of resolve towards the Roman Catholic Church. Because when we read statements sometimes in the, the Council of Trent to go, oh, we're saved by grace. And they'll even say at the initial point of justification in the Council of Trent, the, the Roman Catholic doctrine, that, oh, we're saved by grace alone. Oh, at the initial point. And they'll even quote to Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9. Oh, well, have we misunderstood Rome's position? Nope. Rome has always tried to maintain that there's, it's gracious at the beginning, we don't deserve any of it, but out of that grace, you know, in through the church, in through the, the sacraments, in through these mediators, that the sinner is able to do meritorious works for justification, because justification is a process. The initial point, they'll say, is by grace alone. Does it remind you of any certain errors that have crept into Roman, or not, um, have crept into Protestantism in the last couple of decades? The same, same thing. It has crept into certain teachings, especially people like John Piper, sadly. I've dealt with that program, I don't know how many years ago now I dealt with that program. But they'll say, oh, the initial part is by grace alone. Of course, it's not identical to Rome, it's a little bit different, but there's some similarities to it. But then there's works later on, and that works determine if we are finally justified, or if we'll get into heaven, or whatever the explanation is. The Catholic, Catholic Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, paragraph 1987, justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms on us to the righteousness of God. It conforms on us to the righteousness of God who makes us inwardly just by the power of his mercy. See the difference? Rome says inwardly mercy for justification. That's not, that corrupts the gospel. In paragraph 1992, it is the genius... Oh, sorry. No, that was paragraph 1992, sorry. Um, paragraph 1987, I read them in the wrong order. The grace of the Holy Spirit has power to justify us, that is to cleanse us from our sins and to communicate to us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ through baptism. That is the Roman view. That is the Roman corruption. As uh, John Murray said the following, it is the genius of the Roman conception of salvation to intrude mediators between the soul and the Savior, the Church, the Virgin, the sacraments. On the contrary, it is the glory of the gospel of God's grace that there is 
one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, because they see the instrumental cause as something they administer that is the instrumental cause, and they see it as faith being infused into the person being baptized. At the same time, Rome will say, oh, well, no, no, faith is graciously given. They'll say things like that. And they'll say, oh, yes, our, our, our salvation is by grace. And hopefully the more and more you, you hear these terms, you'll see the, the seriousness of what happened back in, in 1994 with the signing of the Evangelicals and Catholics together. That document has devastated many churches and has weakened the resolve of many evangelicals towards Rome. Make no mistake about it. Especially when you think of the influence of somebody like J.I. Packer. How many times you pick up a reform book, either a J.C. Royal book or whatever else it is, and a, and a foreword written by J.I. Packer. Oh, we're just going to ignore that. Now, of course, I know he's had other documents he signed even after that where he'll affirm justification by faith alone. But we'll get into how Packer downgraded faith alone. We're gonna, I'm kind of skipping ahead here a bit too much. Little, one more thing about the distinction between justification and sanctification. It must be maintained. They're not separated. We can't become antinomians. Yes, sanctification will follow those who have been justified by faith alone. But as John Murray said in his book, um, yeah. Redemption Accomplished and Applied, this, the purity of the gospel is bound up with the recognition of this distinction. If justification is confused, regeneration or sanctification, then the door is opened for the perversion of the gospel at its center. At its center. Now, it's important to look at a little bit of history here. During the 16th century, during the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church, the Roman Church, I mean, historically, the, the, Roman, the Protestants didn't want to let go of the word Catholic because they saw themselves as the Catholic Church. There's nothing wrong with the word Catholic Church, small c. Um, they saw the Roman Church as a departure from the truth. But since the Reformation, it became the Roman, known as the Roman Catholic Church, there was lots of Pelagianism <clears throat> in teachings up until that point. But during the trend, the Council of Trent, Rome, uh, there was two things it was trying to do. It was trying to refute what they saw as errors in the Protestant position. And they anathematized it in many, many different places. Look, especially in the canons of the Council of Trent, the sixth session canons on justification, but they also wanted to, not only did they want to oppose Protestantism, they did not want to come across as Pelagian. They didn't want to come across as openly anti-Augustine. So the first two canons of the canons on justification, even Protestants could agree with because it condemns Pelagianism. William Cunningham, who wrote the classic historical theology, Two volumes, 
He says this, and this is in volume one, page 420, the Church of Rome has always professed to revere the authority of Augustine. While yet the general strain of the practical teaching of most of her writers has been commonly of a Pelagian's caste, and insofar as has been so, the authority of some of the leading schoolmen may be adduced against it, and in support of the leading truths which have been held by the great body of Protestants. Just read that again. The Church of Rome has always professed to revere the authority of Augustine. While yet the general strain of the practical teaching of most of our writers have, have, has been commonly of a Pelagian caste. Now, William Cunningham was writing during the 19th century. He was teaching, I think it was in was it the University of Edinburgh. He was a, a Scottish theologian in the 19th century. Essentially this, Rome mixes what cannot be mixed, grace and works. Romans eleven six is very, very clear, just in the same way that oil and water cannot be mixed. They cannot be mixed because it says in, in Romans eleven six. If by grace there is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. And if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer works. Either you earn it or it's a gift. There's no mix. Because as soon as you say, I've done this even a little thing, it is no longer grace, it is of debt. Even in the smallest degree. Now, a very important thing, and as I was thinking through this um, and mulling over the, the seriousness of someone like, th th this controversy was debated in the 1990s a lot, Jay Packer on one side and Chuck Colson on one, that side, and then the opposite side, a lot of evangelicals. John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, among others. Many, many people wrote against this. Um, and the seriousness of what J.I. Packer had involved himself in with the, the signing of the Evangelicals and Catholics Together document should not be ignored. It has left reverberation. I still hear people using some of these arguments today. Maybe they don't realize where it comes from. In this document, which was signed, it, okay, let's just get a few things out of the way. This was not an official document. It is not authoritative in that sense. But it does weaken the resolve because of the influence of somebody like J.A. Packer and Chuck Olson to a lesser extent, but I think far worse with somebody like J.A. Packer because of what he has contributed for decades within the Reformed world. We affirm, this is what the evangelical, the ECT, I'll be referred to from now on, Evangelicals Catholics Together, the document from 1994 said, we affirm together that we are justified by grace through faith because of Christ. And in another part of this document, all who accept Christ as Lord and Savior are brothers and sisters in Christ. Evangelicals and Catholics our brothers and sisters in Christ. This doctrine is very, very common. I, I see it in a lot of different places today. You might ask, well, maybe it was an accident. 
we can all, you know, I think people kind of go, what's the problem with that? We're justified by grace through faith because of Christ. Well, that doesn't say anything about works. What's wrong with that? Doesn't that say that in the Bible? Um, you might have to scratch your head for a second until you realize what's missing. What is missing from this statement? There's other part, it's a, it's a longer document than this, but just focusing in these two phrases, that evangelicals and Catholics together, even though they both have completely different doctrines of justification, they say they're brothers and sisters in Christ, and also that we're justified by grace through faith because of Christ. The Roman Catholics and the Protestants who signed this felt that they could sign this. Knowing the different views, I'm, I'm like, J.I. Packer knew exactly what the Roman Catholic Church teaches on this. Of course he did. And I'm sure Chuck Olson did and all that. What does that mean? Now, just to deal with, somebody might think, well, was this by an accident? Richard John Newhouse, who, who edited the book, which came out a year later, talking and defending the signing of ECT, he said this, the soul is, this is on page 200 of this book, Evangelists and Catholics together, the Christian mission in the third millennium. Page 200 of this book, he said, the soul is are conspicuous by their absence and it is not by accident that they are absent. Okay, so Richard John Newhouse was a Roman Catholic signer of the document. The solas were intentionally removed. Once the solas are removed, then for the Roman Catholic, the door is open. Well, by faith, oh, they agree with that. But it's also by works. But that's just not even mentioned here. And how about somebody like J.A. Packer signing that document as well? Well, does J.I. Packer, did you, like, okay, back in the 60s when he wrote that it was justification by faith alone was the atlas of biblical doctrine, sure, but a couple of decades later, he could sign a document with Roman Catholics saying, oh, you were saved by faith, and with the soul is left out, basically, is faith alone that element of the gospel relegated to small print. Sure, we believe it in theory, but you don't have to believe it really to be a Christian. A form of downgrade takes place that, yes, I believe that in theory, and that, that's, that's, the, that's the correct one. However, in order for a person to be to be saved, he doesn't have to believe the theory behind it, just to embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. That was the watered-down view that J.I. Packer embraced from that point onwards. I'm not sure if he changed later on. Hopefully he did. R.C. Sproul said this in his book, Faith Alone. What Packer did... No, so... I'll, what Packer in 1961 described as the atlas of biblical doctrine that carries the world of the doctrine and life of the church on its shoulders, how, how now relegates, that might be a typo actually, now relegates to the theory level of doctrine. Atlas has shrugged 
and the evangelical house totters on the brink of collapse. So you see the difference. It's now relegated to theory. Oh, okay, it's in theory, it's true. See, because like we brothers and sisters in Christ, we can have things we believe. Just take something like infralapsarianism and superlapsarianism. Doesn't change a whole lot. But we're still brothers and sisters in Christ, even if we disagree on something like that. The logical orders of the decrees, just picking something like that. Um, but it doesn't alter whether we're saved or not. Well, faith alone has become that with the signing of evangelicals and Catholics together. From the Protestant side, from the evangelical side, well, nothing has been watered down. They stay exactly where they are because they don't have to make any denunciation of their mixing of faith and works. Um, Packer wrote the defend, in defense of the ECT document. This is in page 168 of this that book that was published a year after the document. Evangelicalism seeks to lead people into salvation. And what brings them into salvation is not any theory. He's referring to faith alone. Not any theory about faith and justification but trusting Jesus himself as Lord, Master, and Divine Savior. Can you see this now? I mean, I, just tr trusting Jesus as Lord, Master, and Divine Savior. This is rife. Oh, it's not it. Now, I, I, I remember I, I heard a, a Lutheran minister Not talking about J.I. Packer, but just talking about this view, you know, can we embrace Roman Catholics as our um, brothers and sisters in Christ? Basically gave this view. Well, so, well, in theory, we disagree with Rome and Trent is wrong and all that, but it's not the theory. We don't have to believe it's by faith alone. We just like embrace Christ. And, and this is an astonishing claim. I want to, I'm going to read out to make sure I'm very, very precise in what I'm saying here. Because I know that J.I. Packer, in his early writings, has blessed a lot of people, and he's still championed by many. I don't understand it. But he has been championed by many. Like, Ian Murray has, has been one who's criticized him heavily over the years as well. So this is not just me or... Um, um, R.C. Sproul has also criticized him, etc. and so on. There is an element of truth here, of course, that it is, you know, like if you get a new convert, they're not going to be able to, in great detail, lay out the doctrine of justification in massive detail. However, if anyone is trusting themselves or seeking to establish their own righteousness, do they have any hope? And if you don't believe in justification by faith alone, even if you can't explain it or whatever, if you're not, if you're trusting in anything else other than Christ, you are lost. You are hell bound. You are you are on your way to hell. You are one of those people Paul was speaking of when he said they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness 
have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For God, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. They may not be able to articulate it very well. I'm talking about a, a new convert or something like that. But they do believe that it is not of themselves. If they do trust themselves in any degree, they are lost. Completely lost. And Packer's taking like a half-truth and say, well, it's the theory. If they don't, perhaps... If you're trusting Christ alone, you're saved. So the, the doctrine of faith alone, faith alone, this element of faith alone has been downgraded, not completely denied in an overt explicit sense. You could argue it is, but we'll, we'll avoid the hyperbole, I suppose. The removal of the word alone or soul in, in Latin leaves the door open to works. Door wide open. Roman Catholics are, happ are happily to agree to the document which would not call on them to reject their works or reject their doctrine, their false gospel, which Paul in Galatians chapter 1 verses 6, 7, 8, and 9, that gospel or any false gospel is anathema, is accursed. It also says the faith alone is not essential to the gospel. It downgrades it. It says it's not important. It's theory, yes, it's right, but it's not important. And I'm trying to emphasize this to you, that we would take faith alone seriously, and we would reject these arguments which say, well, well, sure, they kind of trust in their work, so, but, you know, they don't have to get the theory level right as long as they believe in Jesus. Listen to Martin Luther, what he said here. But some fanatics could not could stop this blessed progress of the gospel in a hurry. And in one moment, he could overturn everything that we had built up with the hard work of many years. This is what happened to Paul, the chosen instrument of Christ, Acts 9.15. With great toil and trouble, he had gained the churches of Galatia. But in a short time, after his departure, the false apostles overthrew him, overthrew them, as this and all other epistles testify. So weak and miserable is this present life. And so beset are we by the snares of Satan that one fanatic can destroy and completely undo in a short time. But it took faithful ministers the hard labor of many years, day and night to build up. We are learning this by bitter experience today. And if there's nothing we can do about it, don't downgrade any element of the gospel. And finally, let's talk about works. And let's talk about the necessity of works. We'll wrap it up here. This is our... Is our works necessary? They don't contribute to justification? Well, the work of Christ is that work. The declaration of God, it is a work of God. That finished, perfect work of Christ, his perfect life. He died. He was buried and he rose again 
for our justification. But when we see that, oh, works play no part. They play no part. So what is the temptation? What are we thinking? Well, it's by grace. I can just live how I want. It's not of myself. I can't work for this. So I can go live as I want. Nobody would say that. Well, Paul clearly thought that they would start saying that. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, anticipated the objection that would come up because he emphasized grace alone so much and it's apart from works so much. So he says in Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What shall we say then? He's after spending all this time perhaps making himself sound like an antinomian. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, you know, the more sin we have, well, well, God will be even more gracious to us. Is that the way we're to understand this? Certainly not. In Greek, this is the most emphatic way to say never. How shall we who died in sin live any longer in it? That doesn't make any sense. You've been set free from sin. Why would you continue to serve it? So clearly this is something that because of what Paul was teaching would be an error that would arise in people's minds. It makes no sense to carry on in sin if we've been united to Christ. If we are born again, we will produce good fruit, which will evidence that we've been truly born again, that we've been justified. If there is no fruit, if there is no fruit, the person lives like the devil. The person continues to live addicted to all sorts of pornography, has no victory of sin, has no conscience over it, doesn't care. I'm not saying we're going to be perfect. I'm not saying that new converts won't fall into sin. I certainly did. I certainly struggled with certain horrible things in my first year of being saved. But at the same time, we'll be different. Not perfect, but different. Good fruit. That's why James could say in James 2.17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, is, is James saying the works play a part in justification and we need to have certain works? That's what Rome would teach. No, this is not. And the context is extremely clear in that James is speaking of here a declarative justification. He says in one part, that a man is justified. This is in James 2.24. A man is justified by works and not by faith only. And the Roman Catholic Church would, aha, you see, it's not by faith only. Um, but the context of this section in, in James chapter 2 is speaking declaratively. The, the focus for James is completely different to the focus of Paul in Romans. Paul in Romans is focusing in on the the people won't be adding works apart from the works of the law. That was the focus. In James, it was different. It was battling with antinomianism. Those who people who thought, well, you can just live as you like. There's no difference. Thus also faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. At the beginning of this section, he says, show me, verse 18 of James chapter 8, um, not 18, James chapter 2, verse 18, show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith 
by my works. The whole section is declarative, saying, I will show you my faith. Not the faith is a work, but by my works to show that I have faith. This is why a person who does not have a credible profession of faith, not that they're perfect, but if a person claims to believe the gospel but lives a life that is completely at odds with the gospel, should not be admitted into church membership, no matter what they profess. For example, if somebody comes to the elders in your church, if you're a church elder and somebody comes to you and they're homosexual or a drunk, or I'm not saying that they're struggling and they may have difficulties. We, 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 we sympathize with people. I'm not talking about the person who may fall into a lapse maybe of alcoholism. And when they do, they're brokenhearted and they're weeping before you and they can't believe they've done it. I'm not talking about that person. I'm talking about the person who will do it and not care. I'm talking about the person who will live in an adulterous relationship and justifies it and no signs of repentance. That person should not be admitted into the church. That person shows what we can see that they, they do not have a credible profession of faith. Now, we're not infallible. We don't. But that, if just say, you say, well, what if that person is truly converted? Well, they'll repent. They ought to repent. They ought to repent. So, James chapter 2 is speaking declaratively. It is speaking against antinomianism. It is speaking against the idea that we can just live as we want. And if we do think we can live as we want, and if we have no conscience about it, if we're justifying all sorts of abominations and saying you can be a Christian and a sodomite at the same time, then you do not have a credible profession of faith. There's no reason to think you're born again. And that faith that does not have works is dead. It's a dead faith. It's a dead faith. If anybody's got any questions, now would be the time to fire them out. Um, brother, I had to leave the chat room. Talk to you later, Benjamin. And uh, thank you, everyone who was stuck with me and persevered with me to this point. I hope, by God's grace, this has been a blessing. I This has been longer than normal program. Normally the program's about an hour long. And I didn't want to really break this one up into sections. Um, although that, that did cross my mind. I'll leave you with this thought and fire away any questions. Don't be, don't be afraid to ask. And I, and I'll also be honest, Lord willing, if, um, if I can't answer them, but here's the thing. Is there anything more important than this? Is there anything more important than knowing whether we have, whether the favor of God is upon us? Could you imagine what would happen to the church today in our churches, across our denomination, wherever you are, if we would pour out our hearts into this wonderful doctrine, this glorious truth found in justification before God. Every time we see it, we, glory, we glorify God and be thankful to God. Our hearts rejoice when we sing before God. That we would see what the righteous judge has done for us. 
not even just that we've been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. We walk a different way. Wonderful. Praise the Lord. But how do we have a righteous standing before God in the first place? That we would have what? Oh, that we would see more of Christ and what he's done. How that the door is completely shut to our works to, to contribute anything to our salvation. Contribute anything to our justification. And as we face these uncertain times with hundreds of people dying from coronavirus just as I'm going through this program. Sorry. Do you know you, you listening right now, you watching right now, whatever, however you're listening to this, are you, have you been declared righteous before God? Is it based upon the merits of Christ? Have you placed your trust in Him and in Him alone? Or are you still trusting in your own works? your eternal destiny, where you will spend, whether you will spend an eternity in heaven or an eternity in hell. Remember this, God never changes. He is perfectly holy. He is perfectly just. He has no reason to change. He has provided all needed for our salvation, for our justification. And I pray that you who are listening will all trust in Christ alone today. It's been Paul Flynn. May God bless you all.